Okay, joining me on the line, we've got uh, Sam Russell, who is the Secretary Treasurer for the Australian Regional Organising Committee of the Industrial Workers of the World. How are you going, Sam? I'm going all right, thanks, Scotty. Excellent. Yeah, so, uh, well, I guess um, just explain briefly uh, what the IWW is. Well, um, we're a union of workers who's 100 years old this year. Um, we don't represent any particular industry or trade, rather we organise workers across all industries uh, together into one big union and we were one of the first unions to argue for the need for one big union in the world and it inspired um, some imitators and it also inspired some people who thought the idea was good but they couldn't quite do it uh, like the early ACTU was influenced rather heavily by the idea of one big union. Yeah, right. So I guess um, the whole premise of unions is uh, a, a sort of a fighting back, which uh, really stems from a class. Um, do you want to just briefly explain the sort of class system? It's got many names now, I know, sort of east, west and north and south and rich and poor. Is it basically a divide? Um, well, we think that it's definitely a divide. Uh, the start of our constitution says that the um, working class and the employing class have nothing in common. And I think that those are the two, the two big classes which all Wobblies or members of the industrial workers of the world would agree on, that um, there is a group of people today in the world who employ other people, who steal their time, and who make them work not on the basis of what would do good for people in the world or what would do good for the world, but rather what would do good for the set of people who employ other people. And opposed to them is a group of people who we stand to organise, who are people who basically work for a living, um, which in today's society, particularly in Australia, means the vast majority of people are um, workers. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, and I guess the uh, the class that uh, is the owning sort of class is the uh, the one who stands to benefit from this. I think that you can see that quite clearly in terms of, well, John Howard isn't perhaps the best example of somebody who owns or employs other people, but all of his mates and all of the things which he does, um, for instance, this work choices thing, stand to benefit people who employ others, people who own things rather than actually create good things in the world. So if you look into the detail of what he's done trying to destroy the um, MUA, the Water Workers Union, um, trying to destroy the CFMEU and now he's got the um, National Tertiary Education Union in his sights. He's just successfully nobbled the student union. You can see quite clearly that there is a group of people who stand to benefit from the destruction of unions, from the destruction of working people organised to benefit themselves. Yeah, right. So it's, uh, it's a fairly real thing. I mean, a lot of people would say, John Howard included, that there is no class structure in Australia and I guess... It's a bit more obvious in places like the UK, but you maintain it's still here. Yeah, we don't see class. Class isn't necessarily a culture. Like, when you go to work, you're still employed regardless of the colour of the shirt you wear at work. It isn't a matter of, you know, heavy industry and men sweating in the sun, although that still happens. It's a matter that... Um, all people in this society have to work to get by except for that handful of John Howard's mates and they all share something in common and it isn't always a culture but a lot of the sentiments you hear from people who are employed are very similar like the fact that the boss is 
jerk. I know very few people who are employed who will not agree with that statement. <laughs> um, so, you know, it might not exist in the sense that it does in the United Kingdom where you have um, rich people walking the streets whose families have been rich for a thousand years on the um, sweat and blood of others, but it does exist in a very real sense. John Howard speaks with a privilege which very few other people feel that they have, and that privilege is really gained from the fact that um, he's in on the deal of, on exploiting ordinary working people. Yeah, well, I guess it, it seems sort of fairly obvious once you've sort of had a look into it, and you can see, yes, there's some people working and some people getting the profit from that. Uh, how do they maintain this sort of status quo? It seems that people would go, uh, no, I don't think so. Well, it's, um, it's easy to refuse to work and they've got a simple solution for that and that's um, mind-numbing poverty and a life of dereliction and um, basically if you want to live what people consider to be the good life, if you want to avoid having an anxiety which the government has promoted with its changes to unemployment and anxiety on a day-to-day -day basis about where your bread's going to come from, then you have of your own free will, you choose to work instead of to starve. Um, and once they get you in work or once they get you in a system like Centrelink system, um, they grind you down on a day-by-day -day basis. So the, the biggest enemy the biggest weapon which the bosses have on their side isn't so much strike barracking, it isn't the um, military action like recently they tried in Venezuela, um, it isn't the riot police, though these, these things do come out, it's the fact that on a day-to-day -day basis um, the boss will look over your shoulder and they will tell you off for going to the toilet when you want to or they'll tell you off because you're eating when you need to um, or they'll just do it because they want to grind you down um, and that feeling of being ground down is really a common one at least in Australia today because we work too hard and we work too hard for the wrong people. Yeah, it's true, it's true. Now I guess the uh the whole sort of boss owner culture is uh, it's not well it was imported here from the UK when uh, I guess our, our convict slaves started coming here a couple of hundred years ago and it's still quite a multinational thing isn't it it is um, the the little line I like from Karl Marx and I just want to make it clear we're a union we're not a Marxist organisation, we're not an anarchist organisation, we're not an anything east organisation but a lot of us read this stuff for the history about it. Um, Marx said that there was a bloke who tried to import into Western Australia um, capitalism. He brought across all the um, all the raw materials he needed to work a factory. He brought across all the equipment. He even brought across a bunch of workers who he'd indentured and basically enslaved to him. The one thing which um, this boss trying to set up a new capitalist industry didn't bring across to Australia was the actual system of day-to-day -day work control. So while he brought together all the elements of the system, he didn't bring the system itself. Um, and it has grown out of the experience of Britain and it grows into new countries year by year. So I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find a country which didn't have the relationship of boss and worker, which didn't have that capitalism thing going on. Um, but it grows not by... Um, not necessarily by putting a new set of bosses, a new set of, as we've seen in the 20th century, white bosses over different people. Um, it grows because a group of people in a society want to become boss 
businesses want to become employers and work very hard with the help usually of a large powerful group like the United Kingdom or the United States to import that system in and to grind people down and to turn them into workers. Yeah, right, and uh, I guess the whole thing sort of started uh, at the end of feudalism, really, when the, the kings sort of got deposed and some form of uh, capitalism started, I guess. Definitely. Um, but today, that really isn't what's going on today, rather than seeing the direct build-up of capitalism, like, um, for instance, in South Korea, they've had a very strong workers' movement opposed to the government. They've had a military government in the past. Um, and in South Korea, the fight isn't against um, the imposition of capitalism. The people fighting back are workers. It's a fight over the extension of capitalism more and more into more fields of life. And I think that's really what we're seeing with the whole globalisation thing and the whole um, international corporate culture thing going on is that... Um, rather than this being an imposition of capitalism, an imposition of the boss-worker relationships on different societies. It's more that um, bosses aren't going to stand for organised workers anymore and they think that they can um, grind us out of existence. They're going on the offensive for the one big push to destroy the rights of working people forever. Yeah. Yep. Um... Yeah, and I guess the whole sort of basis of capitalism is purely profit, isn't it? Especially these days. It is. I'm, I think that you can see this most clearly at work. Like, the only place in which profit really comes from at work is the difference between a raw material and a finished, profit, finished product. And the thing which makes that difference is work. Um, and so, at work they want to squeeze and grind the most work they can out of you. And since the 1980s in Australia, we've seen that happen um, firstly under an ALP government under the name of um, the Accord on Wages and Prices, where workers agreed to hold their wages down and bosses agreed to make as much profit as they could. Um, and then later under enterprise bargaining and under um, the new system of employment relations of the Howard government, since the 1980s we're working harder than ever before at work and all that hard work doesn't go back into the community it goes straight into the boss's pockets so since the um, recession we had to have in the 1990s there are people who claim that the um, recession's ended when I look around at um, working people particularly poorer working people in Australia the recession hasn't ended for them they feel the same job security they felt in the depression in the early 90s they feel the same threat against their mortgage if they can afford to buy a house these days and they certainly haven't benefited from the vast improvement in the economy which has come mainly by people voluntarily deciding to work harder to work faster and to work for the boss's interests Yep, it's true. Now, um, I guess apart from capital sort of building its empire all over the world, it's also um, another sort of side of the many-edged coin is uh, property, and it uh, it tends to buy up and gobble up a whole lot of property, and even in the agricultural sector, it's squeezing a lot of people out around the world, isn't it? It is, and I think that this is, this is happening on a twofold basis. Like, a lot of the... Um, small farmers like the Korean farmers who recently tried to swim into a major capitalist 
world gathering in Hong Kong um, are faced with the destruction of um, a traditional way of living and they tend to be um, the poorer kind of farmers and um, the conglomeration of property um, at least in the rural workplace is as much about um, capitalists gobbling up as other capitalists as it is about property itself because for you know in the farming industry and you can see it most clearly in America farms are massive they're run on the same basis as factories with instead of individual farmers working their own tractors or driving their own animals around um, the farms have to employ basically um, professional skilled labor in the form of workers and these workers are often uh, the poorest and least organized and you can see uh, racism most clearly here that people who in Mexico in past decades would have been extremely poor peasants on other people's farms uh, now moving north immigrating into the United States and becoming extremely poor workers on capitalist farms so um, at least in the agricultural sector um, property in the form of land grows bigger through that same structure which makes property in the form of industry or property in the form of services um, grow bigger and more extensified. Yeah, interesting stuff really. Um, ah, damn, I just forgot my next question there. I bet it was good not to worry. So you've got, um, ah, that was the one. Uh, I guess Capital really scored a big win in the United States uh, some time ago now. I think it was might have been the 40s or 50s or something when it uh, managed to score a legal win saying that uh, a corporation is to be treated the same as an individual. Um, I think it actually happened... That one actually happened in the 19th century, but it only became significant in the middle of the 20th century when you got all those big monopolies like IBM or General Motors or Ford Corporation um, in that um, America is more like Europe than Australia it's got 52 different legal systems and corporations <laughs> in America operate by hopping across the borders of states much as they've um, set up NAFTA to allow them to hop across the borders of the United States into Canada or Mexico and basically play off one small regional government against another in the race for the bottom of, in terms of wages. In the 30s in America, you saw a lot of wins by unionists using techniques inspired by the IWW and IWW organisers, and unions won real legal gains off governments, like um, government-enforceable contracts. And to circumvent this, what a lot of the corporations did was they went to the southern states where there's a much much less wealth, much less industry and a much poorer working class and basically held the carrot of large factories over small governments and got them to introduce anti-worker legislation at the state level. Um, so, uh, very much so. The role of the corporation as an individual is pretty much unique since 1940 in that we aren't seeing an individual capitalist who you can point to and say, this man is bad. Rather, you see a system of nameless people working together um, through shared institutions which are called corporations or hedge funds or limited liability trusts or whatever. And um, 
they put all of their liability into the corporation and they still benefit, but they benefit on a collective basis or based on who owns the most stock through the stock market. Um, so the corporation is really the perfect instrument for capitalists because it makes them anonymous, but it still means that they get the profit they expect. Yes, perfect. King shareholder. Uh, okay, so we'll move on to unions. And the IWW, I imagine, was, uh, well, being 100, it was in there in the amongst the first. Um, yeah, when did, when did they start up? I presume it followed shortly on capitalism starting up and starting to screw people. Uh, well, actually, and unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, capitalism, uh, people argue about when it started, but factory capitalism started around... 1800 in the United Kingdom and maybe 1820 in the United States um, and unions didn't organise immediately because it was illegal and um, any gathering of working people were normally charged down by the cavalry um, so before about 1880 you don't see unions what you see is um, momentary protests or protests which because the government are basically uh, sending the military out against unarmed protesters turn into riots or rebellions. So um, one of the very first worker-controlled societies was in America, in uh, New Orleans. No, it wasn't. St. Louis. Um, in the 1840s or 50s, after a protest or demonstration. Um, and the US government built a whole series of armaments, uh, including Battery Park in New York, not to hold off foreign enemies, but to hold off American workers. I think you can read about this in Howard Zinn's excellent People's History of the United States. But so it took 180 years for workers to organise unions after capitalism really started impacting on the world because um, governments used major force against any attempt to organise. And then in the 1880s or so, you start seeing organisations of workers banding together on a serious basis to oppose their bosses, but these tend to be organisations of the most skilled and privileged workers, and they don't organise everybody in the one factory, they only organise, you know, the um, skilled man who comes over at the end and looks over to make sure that the job works perfectly, or the person with that one special skill, and bargaining in the, with the boss, they held um, their skill over the boss, so they'd stop doing that one essential job. Um, and basically they left the rest of the working class to rot in the face of um, bosses' attacks. So unions took a long time to come together, and the IWW was first formed in 1905, so maybe you know, 25 years after the first serious unions came together, and it formed on a completely different basis. Rather than protecting the wealthier and skilled workers by you know, holding back their skill from the operation, um, it sought to organise all workers, skilled and unskilled, who worked in the same area, um, and to use everybody's work, to withhold everybody's work from bosses um, in order to get benefits from everybody. So I suppose that's one thing which differentiates your modern union from your older union, and that's um, organising everybody and a more thoroughgoing idea of solidarity and those two ideas are pretty much what makes the IWW the IWW. Yeah, because there's a, a whole big sort of massive range of all different unions in Australia. Um, yeah, are they sort of splintered and maybe open to the divide and rule that we mentioned earlier? I think that they are open to divide and rule and um, 
what I'd point to is, for instance, um, in the maritime trade, you've got a um, a trade union, a union where people who are organised by the particular work they perform um, for marine engineers, and then you've got a completely different union for everybody else who works on ships or works on the docks, um, which is organised on an industrial basis that everybody who works in the same place should be part of the same union. Um, and then you've got unions which are, rather than being organised on any serious basis, so everybody who can actually meet at the same workplace belongs to the same union, um, they're organised on, um, for instance, only somebody who clerks in a workplace will belong to this union. So they organise clerks from a whole different bunch of workplaces, but not um, everybody in the same workplace. And I don't know if you've been the... Um, only administrative staff on the job in a factory or in a workplace full of, you know, 150 other people, but there's no industrial strength when you're the only union member on site. So what we've got is, in Australia, is a inherited set of union structures which are basically, um, well, not basically, in many cases they're the results of um, people carving out personal fiefdoms in the past. And the one organisation which you'd look to to coordinate all these unions and you know, start acting like one big union seriously defending all our rights, uh, the ACTU, um, really doesn't do much in terms of on-the-job workplace activity. So it's kind of disheartening to see the Australian union movement in the state it's in because um, on a number of occasions in the past it has basically set out and said that um, one big union is the way that it should be organised. Yeah, I guess another thing that the Australian unions did quite early on was to form a political party, the uh, Labor Party. Um, <laughs> how do you reckon that experiment's gone? Well, the ALP was formed because the unions were defeated in the 1880s. It's just that simple. The ALP is basically a symbol of the fact that people um, didn't organise good unions and weren't confident of union organisation as the way to begin and I think that the ALP has um, carried that mantle of industrial defeat around with it. So the ALP supported the system of compulsory arbitration and union registration in um, the not early in the first decade of the 20th century 1900 to 1910 um, which crippled the union movement for 90 years afterwards because it basically said you can't strike against the boss, you have to go to court and negotiate with them, um, which, you know, if you go to the boss's courts then you get a boss's decision. Um, the other thing which of course is disappointing about the ALP is that, um, is that it seeks solutions through Parliament and the limits of Parliament are just how far the bosses will let you get within capitalism and no further and quite often as um, the Whitlam case shows um, it doesn't even get to that extent when you start acting in the interests of working people within capitalism better health care better education better job security um, you will be deposed by um, the governor general the representative of one of the richest women in England so the RP the ALP has been a disappointing thing for the Labor movement in that um, it sought answers through Parliament and 
Parliament has changed it in many ways, causing it to seek smaller answers than it could have, causing it to win smaller games than we could have through union organisation. Yeah, and I guess uh, taking a view from the, the bottom of the pile, the political parties and courts and legislation and arbitration are all really sort of asking asking someone else to deal with it and avoiding the problem a little bit. Well, when you go to the casino, you don't seriously expect to walk away with more than you came in with. You know, you might win lucky once or twice, but the house always wins. Yeah. And um, playing the boss's game through the courts and through Parliament is really playing at a casino, except rather than money, you're playing it with your life, and the um, house will win. Okay, we're going to go to a song, and we'll be back shortly with more from Sam Russell, and we'll be talking a bit more in depth about the industrial workers of the world. We're back, we're talking to Sam Russell, who is the Secretary-Treasurer of the Australian Regional Organising Committee of the Industrial Workers of the World. It's an easy slip. Uh, so how does the IWW differ from um, from the conventional unions? Well, with some unions in Australian history, we haven't differed that much. And I'd like to talk about um, two unions at two different times, one which we were directly involved with and one which um, shared a lot of our ideas and we hope we helped to inspire them. The first one, and this might sound a bit unusual, is the Australian... Meat Workers Industrial Employees Union. Um, and they're interesting because um, they organised all people who worked in slaughterhouses, meat packing and refrigeration, um, whereas before in the past you'd get the, um, the experts, the slaughterers working in a different union to the meat packers, working in a different union to the refrigerators, working in a different union to the cleaners, to the people who ran the boilers. Um, so you got an industrial union rather than, say, seven or eight different trade unions. Yep. And for, from the period from about 1910 to 1924, particularly in North Queensland, um, the Australian Meat Workers Industrial Employees Union um, had a lot of wobbly members inside their union. And basically the AMIEU managed to win through direct action, which I'll talk about in two ticks, um, job control. Now, th these are two really simple ideas. Direct action means fighting the boss by yourself at work, and um, job control means workers as a group deciding how their own work will run. Um, and in the instance of the Meat Workers Union, what they did was they organised um, the one critical element who um, were required in every plant, who were the actual slaughterers, and they moved from plant to plant through North Queensland, so they also spread the union ideal as they went from plant to plant. The boss couldn't fire these blokes for organising the union because they were too essential to the production process. Mm -hmm. And the union strength, which was developed not just by having the specialists in one union off by themselves, but by having everybody on the work site together, um, meant that they could scare the boss. And basically what they won was um, preference of employment, which means that if you work there, you have to be a unionist, and um, the boss can't fire you for being a unionist. And if you get sacked from one place where you're employed, it's easy for you get it, to get work elsewhere in the industry. Um, and the other thing they won was what they called boards of control, which basically meant instead of the boss running the job, the union did as a d democratic collective. Um, so that's really, I suppose, 
um, what you'd like to see happening at every workplace, that um, everybody's organised together and that you run your own workplace rather than the boss running it. Because, to be quite frank, the people who do the job know how to do the job best. Yep, absolutely. And I guess uh, if you give the workers... Uh, their own head, I guess, then they're going to come up with better ways of doing it, most likely. Um, well, they generally know how to do it better, how to do it faster, how to do it cheaper, and how to do it safer. Um, and I suppose that's one of the things which the industrial workers of the world says about getting rid of capitalism, is that there's nothing to be afraid of because, on the whole, we run most of the world as it is anyway. We're just ordered to run it differently from the way we know it should run by bosses. Um, and secondly, that it's easy to point to loads of occasions where workers have run their own workplace and they've run it far better than the boss ever could. The other group which I wanted to talk about was um, the Building and Labourers Federation in New South Wales in the 70s. And um, they weren't organised by the IWW, but they used a lot of our songs and they organised using tactics which I think are examples of... Um, particularly sensible union organisation. Now, the BLF weren't an industrial union. They're a union of tradespeople. And in their case, it was the least skilled um, tradespeople on building industry sites. But they grew their own strength, and when they were strong in themselves, they coordinated with all the other unions on building industry sites to work together on industrial action. And they were very strong on member participation and member control of unions, and they were also very strong on member control of jobs. So the BLF's success was built out of um, democracy in the union, democracy at work, and struggling with the boss. And for, for their run, I think that they were a pretty damn successful union in that they um, built the builder's labourer, who in the 1940s was basically starving at work. They would have got a better job off the dole, and the dole back in the 40s wasn't particularly good, into workers who earn very respectable wages and I think that you can point to an instance like that where in the course of you know 40 years through clever unionism and clever industrial strength people who would basically be at the bottom of the pile are now living good lives yeah interesting stuff I mean the BLF was interesting for a number of ideas it also sort of broke away from the sort of very narrow focus that many unions have on just the job and also introduced the green bands which of course is why the rocks is still there in Sydney and many other places. Definitely and I think there are a lot of people who kind of go well if you only organise at work you'll only change things at work and it's a fair enough criticism as long as um, as long as people look at unions today which have a very narrow focus but if you look at successful unions successfully democratic unions which are run by their members um, people aren't just people at work and when they make decisions they don't just think about their work they think about their whole life which is why um, when you look at successful unions like the BLF or um, other successful moments where working people have controlled their own destiny um, they don't just decide to pay themselves higher wages and to work less hours um, and they don't do that ridiculously. They decide, you know, well, how's our job going to impact on the rest of society? And maybe we should be talking with, as in the case in the, of the BLF, we should be talking with the community who's impacted by the way we do our work. So um, 
they're an excellent example of um, union strength in a number of ways and how when unions do good it changes all of society for the better. Absolutely. Um, I guess another thing the IWW really pioneered was uh, a very inclusive sort of unionism which had women and Asians who were facing a lot of discrimination at the time and black people uh, were also quite welcome to join. Definitely. Um, the, in, a, in an era when the ALP could quite strongly support the white Australia policy in the teens and the 20s of last century, um, in an era when black people were being killed in the streets in the, of the South and the Ku Klux Klan was larger than it had ever been before or would ever be later in the 20s in America, and in an era where very few unions would touch workers who weren't white, the IWW was organising in America and in Australia um, workers of all colours and workers of all races and backgrounds. Um, I think the other thing to point out here is that the IWW has never only organised English-speaking countries. Um, in the teens in America, up to today, we've always translated material and organised communities who are non-English-speaking backgrounds. I think the current um, Americans' campaigns are, are for Spanish-language literature, mainly aimed at Spanish-language first speakers in the United States, and also providing um, Chinese-language literature. Um, but in the past, there have been strong movements in South America through the um, through the Water Workers Union, who basically um, unionists who sailed on ships and took the union to every port of call they visited. Yeah, yeah, and I guess uh, yeah, that explains the workers of the world bit, um, which is good. I mean, because the the capitalist whole system is multinational. Really, any union that hopes to encompass the whole system is. Uh, needs to be that as well. I guess the uh, the, the system is uh, also part of what you're um, fighting against, I guess. You would rather sort of abolish the wage system, I read on your website. What does that sort of mean? Uh, well, one thing which, um, which... Wages are basically a system of slavery. <laughs> I know that's going to be controversial, <laughs> and in practice... Um, we try and win the best wages we can off the boss. Um, but if you have a look at the wage, uh, the wage is what chains you to a job in that in our society you can't live without money and you can't get money without working um, or owning other people's work. And that's why we call it wage slavery. Somebody owns your work and controls whether you can live or not by paying you or withholding pay. Um, and... The wage is a problem not only, you know, like some people think money is a way of scoring points or a way of marking whether you've worked hard or not. Um, but if you have a look at the bosses in Australia, um, their wealth is in no way connected to how hard they work. Um, Kerry Pack is one of the biggest bludgers in Australia, yet he's paid enormous sums of money for being alive, whereas some of the people who work particularly hard to get by day to day are suffering on on pitiful sums of money. Hard work doesn't equate to wages. And if hard work doesn't equate to wages, then where does the money come from? It seems like it's completely arbitrary. Some people who do no work suffer on Centrelink. Some people who do no work um, own major media corporations. And the people in the middle, um, 
you can quite obviously see that two people in the same job, people work harder or less hard or longer or less long and there seems to be no connection between effort and reward. Um, so if the wage is really capricious like this and if the only thing it does basically is stop hard-working people getting the good things in life, then why not do away with the wage altogether? Yeah, so uh, what would you put in its place? Um, well, we'd like to put in place a thing we call the Industrial Commonwealth, um, which basically means um, the government of all industries by the people who work in them and who are affected by them. Um, but if you're talking about how would you get good things in life in the future, well, one of the strongest things I'd point to is the idea of solidarity or it's also called generosity. You know, if you make fridges, there's no reason in taking home 100 fridges and there's no particular reason why people who would want fridges would need more than at most, you know, three. Let's say you've got a lot of um, kids in your family, you need two fridges to store your food and you need a beer fridge in the backyard. You're not going to want to take 20 fridges home. And quite often people feel these days a sense of environmental responsibility. You're not going to want three fridges because you know you know, just how much impact on the environment three fridges would have. So if you look at cases where um, people do work for free and give it away, um, quite often you'll find that um, people don't exploit that. You know, there's only, um, there's only so much stuff you'd want to read on the internet. You know, you can't um, deplete... Um, Linux free software by downloading an extra version, and it isn't going to hurt anybody. But nor are you want to gain to, nor are you going to want to sit down there and download a thousand copies. Um, people don't stalk the Hari Krishnas for food in the <laughs> evening. Um, it's nice food. You might want to go, you know, once or maybe twice a week, uh, but you're not going to follow them around and eat every meal off them. Um, so basically, our idea is that. Um, people are selfish enough to know not to exploit things which they would want to use in the future. So they're selfish enough to, you know, only have one or two fridges or because they know it's stupid to have more. We've got faith in the good sense of people. And what I'd point to is for the people who support the system of wage slavery, um, do they imagine that people are both not generous enough to give away what they make and not selfish enough to realise where their own self-interest lies. You know, if you think the wage system is a good thing, then quite literally, how stupid do you think people are? Do you think they're incapable of realising what they want, what they need, um, and what they should do to get there? Hmm, interesting. So uh, you offer also a fair bit of uh, support for your members to help uh, build capacity to organise in different countries and uh, amongst other unions and stuff? Um, yeah, we do. I'd probably point to the United States for um, the most of this because, um, quite frankly, the United States has got a different legal system, one which has basically encouraged competition between um, one set of unions which supports a union bureaucracy and another set of unions which outright supports the bosses. And the fact that they've demanded competition between unions has meant that there's been space for the IWW 
to grow and to win shop by shop. Um, so in the United States, um, there are shops organised by the IWW which have won contracts off bosses and um, quite often what happens in the United States is that there's a large number of irritated workers who know that they want a union and who've organised themselves and come to the IWW and say, we want to participate in this because we want to grow alongside you and we reckon your ideas are right, as well as the organising campaigns we take on. So um, we do offer support. In the United States, they've got more detailed training programs, but in Australia generally, um, we work by on a person-to-person level because we come from a lot of different industries and a lot of different backgrounds and um, we reckon the best benefit can be had from um, being supported on a long-term basis in union activity because in Australia, quite frankly, it's rather hard. The laws we have um, don't support um, don't support the more adventurous sorts of unionism. They don't support the kinds of unions which will win. Like if you have a look at three of the most effective unions in Australia, the um, MUA, the CFMEU and the NTEU, they're all the ones being attacked by Howard's government. And, you know, when, when the over-the-counter registered under the law as the official the official union for a certain kind of job gets attacked by the government it is hard going for everybody in all unions Um, so to make up for that we tend to organize cooperatively because you know when another union can be made better that's a good thing and with our members we um, work to give them a lot of support on an individual basis as human beings because um, that's the best way to build good unionists in this day and age yeah, good one. Well, we'll go to another song um, and we'll be back shortly to talk with Sam Russell from the IWW. So we welcome back Sam Russell, who is uh, part of the Regional Organising Committee for the Industrial Workers of the World to 2XX. How you going, Sam? I'm doing fine, thanks, Scotty. Excellent, excellent. Uh, now, last time uh, we talked, I think we uh, talked a fair bit about uh, in-depth about the whole class system and the problem and uh, what the IWW is but uh, give us a quick wrap up of uh, that that gear well the um, basic problem is that there are people who work and people who do nothing but control other people's work um, and we like to call that uh, a working class and a boss class um, the IWW is a union of working people who thinks that um, society will be better when the working people themselves control what work they do and who benefits from that work. Yeah, and uh, right, so basically uh, what what is the IWW after? Um, I'd say that we're after the um, thorough extension of democracy throughout our entire society. I mean, it's nice to imagine that we live in a democracy where we can periodically re-elect a bunch of bosses to govern over us, Um, but we'd like to see the ideas of democracy, which many people practice day-to-day in sporting clubs or social groups, and use them to control where we do 
a lot of our lives, which is day-to-day at work. So we'd like to see the workplace itself receive some of the benefits of democracy, which would mean, basically, um, removing the boss's prerogative. There's no reason to have kings governing nations. There's no reason to have the equivalent at work. Yep. Right, so I guess there's... um there's beginning, well, I don't know about historical examples, but certainly in the present there's a few things that are uh, that are happening around the place, like Argentina, certainly there's a Naomi Klein film uh, called The Take, which if uh, anyone hasn't seen that, I'd encourage them to go down to their video store and get it out. It's about uh, the workers taking over the abandoned factories after the capitalist self-imposed collapse in Argentina. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen it yet, actually, um, but I'm looking forward to seeing it when I see it down the local video store. Um, I think that it's really inspiring that this has happened because um, a lot of people like to point to the Soviet Union and say that it was a, <laughs> it was a joke, and I'd have to agree with them. The problem is that I disagree with them when they say that the Soviet Union being a joke or you know, um, North Korea or even Cuba being a joke today means that any society of the future will necessarily be a joke. And I'd point to Argentina. It it hasn't happened with guns. It hasn't happened with the overthrow of a government. But day by day, workers are controlling more of what they do at work and the boss is becoming less and less relevant to daily life in Argentina. Yeah, absolutely, and they certainly have been doing it in a a very democratic fashion, as you say, and uh, advocate. And I guess, um, yeah, the trouble with the the whole Russian experiment was that it was very hierarchical from the beginning, wasn't it? Well, it it was, and in many ways that's um, that's the problem. I like to put a lot of confidence in working people because I'm one of them, and I know that we're sensible. And I think, to be quite honest, nobody who's a worker today would put up with any kind of anti-democratic thing going on because, um, to be quite honest, we're the people who are going to run things and we know that we can and there's no reason that that we should put anybody else in our way and I think the example of Argentina is a brilliant one because Argentina is a society a lot like Australia in terms of education. They're a resource-exporting economy primarily kind of like Australia is but their economy's crashed earlier than us um, and to point to you know people living in the modern world who are educated like us who know instinctively that democracy is the way to control work it's a great sign it's a great sign that nobody will be fooled again yeah it certainly is I guess another example that's just sprang into my mind is uh, Spain in the 30s had a a fair go at being uh, completely democratic, didn't it? Um, Yeah, I think that Spain's another interesting example, particularly in the way that uh, the workplace was very important to that and that people organised together in their workplaces without union competition. Like one of the things we get in our society is one workplace has three, maybe four unions based on old histories about who got to control what or the difference between you know clerical workers and manual workers or something stupid like that but the important thing i think in the spanish example in the 1930s was um the two big unions uh the cnt and the um ujt or ugt i think were um one workplace one union all the workers together and that's really 
um, where the IWW thinks democracy begins when people in a single workplace start dealing with their workplace democratically and together, uh, not letting themselves get split up by job definitions or, um, you know, minor steps or levels or pay scales or even allowing themselves to get split up just because they have to belong to two different unions. And in the Spanish example, that kind of unity um, really allowed people to begin taking over where they work and controlling their own future at work. Yeah, and I guess the uh, yeah for people who who maybe uh, younger than eighty and haven't haven't remembered the uh, Spanish Revolution, um, can you give us a, just a quick outline of it? Um, well, in Spain, trade unions were illegal at the beginning of the 20th century, and in the 1920s, a very strong union movement grew up um, called the CNT or the um, National Confederation of Workers, and um, it fought with the government in the 20s and lost, but kept bouncing back and kept returning to organising in the workplaces, to organising democratic union branches in the workplaces, and because it was very strong in fighting the government and because it was very strong in fighting the bosses at work, um, it grew into a very large union. And in the middle of the 1930s, when um, the CNT and another trade union, the UGT, which was very similarly organised, um, were there in society pushing for more change and better conditions, a kind of left-wing, kind of like the ALP government was elected, and that government was so intolerable to the... Um, very large aristocracy in Spain, which was supported by a very reactionary and hierarchical church in Spain, not always the local priests, more the hierarchy of the church. And um, the right wing in Spain, the aristocrats and bishops and fascists and businessmen revolted against a government which was well, no more controversial than the normal ALP government is. And when the right wing in Spain took up arms against the government and the people of Spain, the unions, the CNT and the UGT, took control of their workplaces and tried very strongly to fight off um, that combination of bosses and fascists and aristocrats. Yeah, and I think that lasted for a number of years with many people coming from internationally to lend a hand and then... Uh Ooh, how did Franco come to be there? He ended up teaming up with Mussolini and Hitler, wasn't it? Yes, so it took the um, strength of three extremely strong fascist powers to defeat um, organised working people in Spain. But um, I think that this is, this is one of the other inspiring things about Argentina, that um, in the past, when people have taken control of their own lives, um, the pro-war attitude on the part of many governments and unfortunately many workers across the world has allowed governments to get away with um, intervening when working people took control of their own lives. I'm thinking off the top of my head at the beginning of things in um, Russia when workers were in control of many, many of their own factories, um, the French, British, Japanese, Americans, Australians, Canadians and um, Poles all tried to crush workers controlling their lives in Russia 
in Spain, um, Mussolini's Italy, Hitler's Germany, um, and the support of a number of conservative nations in Europe, at least morally, were needed to defeat the working people in Spain. In Hungary in 1956, when um, out of nowhere people inside you know, the Soviet Union sphere said, this really is a joke, and said, well, we'll take your ideology seriously. If you're going to say we control the factories, then we may as well do so. Um, it took the entire strength of the Soviet Union to crush them. But in today's age, when you see such large protests against um, what is quite obviously a war for oil, I don't think that it's as simple for um, there to be a military reaction. And I think that's what you're seeing in Argentina, that um, it would be unconscionable for uh, you know, America, who's the closest large capitalist nation to intervene militarily in Argentina, um, but also it would be a public relations nightmare for the United States to do so. Um, so I think that we're entering an age where democracy and you know, the democratic power of working people across the world um, can reduce the ability of governments to use the military option to um, turn back what working people have organised for and begun to implement. Yeah, I guess they've talked their talk for long enough. People are going to make them walk it as well. Um, right, so I guess um, one of the... Well, certainly the most... Um, most effective way, according to the IWW, to get to this uh, end is um, direct action. Can you sort of explain to us, I guess in the younger generation we're more familiar with direct action being a bunch of greenies going out and stopping people working rather than uh, the other way around. So, yeah. Well, direct action is basically doing things for yourselves um, and I think that the... Um, it isn't always stopping people from doing things. So, for instance, a strike is direct action. It's you, we ourselves removing our work from a job. Um, but direct action is also positive direct action. So there was an example in Western Sydney in the 1970s at a company called Harco where um, the company sacked everybody and the workers refused to be sacked and continued working. Um, they locked themselves in and worked in. Um, and this was not quite effective, I mean the sack stuck there, but um, they did use their own strength at work and just like a strike, well in the case of Harco because the company was going down and out, um, working on the raw materials actually um, cheats the boss because the receivers can't um, you know, sell semi-finished goods or whatever. But we like to talk about direct action as opposed to indirect action. Indirect action is going to somebody else and begging for something. And it doesn't work in personal life, and it works even less when you try it at work or try it in political life. Um, I don't know how many elections in Australia people have gone to the government and asked for real change in their lives. And you can count the number of elections where they've actually achieved significant change. It's extremely small and the amount of change achieved is usually minuscule. Whereas if you look at occasions where people have used direct action, where they have actually taken control of their lives by telling the world what the boss actually does at work because the boss never orders things to be done correctly or in a sensible way. They always cut corners. They always cheat the public. 
doing good work at work when the boss says to do bad work, which cheats the boss and benefits the public. For instance, when transport workers run a no-fair day. Um, or, in fact, working to the exact specifications which the boss lays down, which is called work to rule. Now, I know that everybody works outside the rules to get the job done and works outside the rules because the rules, more often than not, are stupid. But if you obey the letter of the law the boss lays down, you know, the productive process breaks down. That kind of direct action shows our strength when we do it together and it restricts the boss's strength. And this kind of stuff actually achieves outcome. More wage rises have been won by the strike or the threat of the strike than by arguments that people are really suffering to a industrial relations tribunal. Yeah, yep, it's <laughs> not the most fruitful avenue, really. Um, yeah, and I guess um, direct action by workers sort of invites direct action back by the bosses. Um, what sort of what sort of things do they sort of resort to? Well, we've talked about a couple in relation to historical incidents where people start running their lives. In the past, they have called in the military. And I think you need to look at the boss's direct action, things which for us as working people are indirect action, going begging to parliament, going begging to the courts, hoping that the media will tell the true story, <laughs> is indirect action because they aren't our institutions, they aren't things which we control. Whereas for the bosses, parliament, the courts, the media and the army and police forces, uh, they're playthings, they're their toys and the boss will resort to these things. Have you ever seen a media article about a trade union incident which has ever portrayed the trade union in a good light? I certainly have seen very few on television. Um, have you ever seen an incident where um, a boss has been prosecuted for violence at work or for threatening behaviour at work which amounts to assault? Whereas the number of times in which workers have been prosecuted by the boss is very high. For instance, I'm thinking of the waterfront dispute in the late 90s in Australia when the Howard government basically sacked a bunch of SAS soldiers, trained them in Dubai to be dock workers, sent them to work on the docks and hired private security guard thugs with dogs and face masks. The government of the day and the bosses behind them, um, the Patrick's company in that incident, feel quite happy about using the army. They feel quite happy about going over to the SAS and saying, well, chaps, do you want to earn you know, $120,000 a year while um, security guards beat up peaceful pickets outside. Um, so there are a number of tools in the boss's arsenal. Some are very violent, some are very sly, like isolating somebody at work, like calling meetings where people are berated for activities which a lot of people do. Um, but to be quite honest, the only way to counter the boss is by organising and out-organising them because a strong unified workplace belonging to one union or belonging to a couple of unions if they have to but being very cooperative together will scare the boss and is more powerful than um, the threats which they can mount and take within the reasonable you know, within what the government and the media lets them get away with. Yeah, I guess a logical example of that would follow on from the uh, the maritime dispute if, say, the maritime union had organised with other maritime unions internationally so that any any boats that got loaded by the scab labour here 
would not get unloaded anywhere else in the world. Uh, it wouldn't have mattered what they did, really. Mm. Well, that's one of the reasons why the industrial workers of the world stands for international unionism, because it isn't just good enough to have unionisation in one country. Um, in the early 20th century, the Australian and New Zealand unions were very strong, but it didn't do them much good in terms of improving our working conditions because, you know, people can import goods from overseas where the unions aren't as strong. Um, and there's no point in fighting capitalism, which is, you know, really a global system. There's nowhere in the world where there aren't bosses today if you, don't, if you aren't organised to fight them everywhere because they can send work overseas, they can ship goods from overseas... Um, the problem in the world today isn't local, it isn't one country's problem. It's every country's problem and we have to organise together as a group of people in the world, as a group of working people across the world, to counter their strength internationally. Yeah, OK. Well, before we uh, wind it up, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, well, I'd, I'd like to plug our website, www.iww.org.au. Um, Thanks for having me on too. Well, no problem. Um, it was a pleasure and I guess sometime in the future I'll probably uh, hit you up again for uh, things like your, your hours, four hours a day sort of campaign and I'm sure you've got a few other things up your sleeve to yarn about. So. I certainly do. All right, we'll look forward to it. Sam Russell from the Industrial Workers of the World. Thank you. Thank you.